chapter 25 and 26, uh, and I'd like to read through a lot of it. Um, and then what we're going to do is look at the two chapters together in context to see what the central themes are. Because I, as I was reading it and preparing, it seemed that there was a, some connections that kind of jumped out at me that I found interesting, uh, and hopefully you will as well. Uh, as, if you remember, if you were here last week, um, we saw uh, Abraham's servant going to get a bride for Abraham's son, the son of promise, Isaac. We talked about uh, briefly how that is a type of the Holy Spirit gathering the bride of Christ to be united with him. And uh, that was a just a, it's a very telling, uh, romantic story in the Bible. We don't see those very often, but it was very uh, Beverly Lewis-esque, I don't know, <laughs> uh, whatever Christian romance authors that are out there. Um, but uh, let's dive into chapter 25. We're going to see uh, someone who we've been paying attention to for a number of weeks pass off the scene. Uh, Abraham. We've spent a number of weeks looking at Abraham's life. We met him in chapter 11 of Genesis, and now we're all the way up to chapter 25. So that's been the bulk of our study. We've been looking at this man, Abraham, and now he passes off the scene. So let's look at verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Leumim. I'm trying my best here. Uh, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were children of Keturah. So Keturah was not, it says he took another wife, but really uh, we see in Scripture in First Chronicles, she was actually a concubine of Abraham's, which this is not something that God had ordained. It was something that was cultural at the time. Um, but we see these relationships happening throughout Scripture. Um, and we see later on that God actually makes a, a, uh, a command that you be, you know, he wants people to have one man, one woman, and uh, it's actually put into the law. So um, this at this time we see Sarah has passed away, and now he has this Keturah, and she has a number of children for Abraham. So Abraham, you know, we, a lot of times we think of Isaac and Ishmael, but he had several children, uh, as we just listed, and we found all their names very interesting, I'm sure. Uh, in verse 5, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, and that's important to note, because Isaac was the son of promise. He was the one that was going to get the inheritance, even though technically he wasn't the firstborn, because Ishmael had been born 13 years previously. Um, he was the son of Sarah, his actual wife, and the one that God had promised to be the descendant that uh, through which all of God's promises would be fulfilled. Um, and in verse 6, it says, But to the sons of his concubines, there you see it says concubines there, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. And I think it's cool that we see, uh, for, you know, in a sense, Isaac and Ishmael bury the hatchet so that they can bury their father. Uh, they come together. This is really the only time that we see them together as men in the scriptures. Um, but Ishmael loved his father Abraham. Isaac loved his father Abraham. 
and they come together and bury him in the very cave that Sarah had been buried in, the one that he had purchased. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to it. But um, we talked about the significance of that location, and you can and uh, you can refer back to the teaching to see what that location was. Um, but let's move on in verse 12. It says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to him. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. You ready? Uh, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. Thankfully, he doesn't say them again. Uh, <laughs> by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against his kinsmen. And if you notice in verse 16, it says, 12 princes according to their tribes. And that's an actual, that's a literal fulfillment of what God had promised Hagar in Genesis 17:20, when she was at Beer Lahai Roy. Uh, that's where she had left after she had been shunned and cast out by um, Sarah once she was pregnant with Ishmael. This was before Ishmael was born. God had promised Hagar that she would give birth to a son, that he was going to be a wild man, but he was going to father 12 princes. And uh, Hagar named that place where God had seen her affliction, Beer Lahai Roy, which was my God sees or something like that. But it's interesting because we see... Um, Beer Lahai Roy is where, if you look back in verse 11, that's where Isaac sets up where he's going to live. Um, so there is a significance there that God is seeing and he's watching and observing everything that has to do with his people. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so let's move on. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, (laughs) to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Take note of that. We'll talk about that tonight. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? I can can only sympathize. I can't empathize with her in this situation. But she's like, if this is what it means, why did I pray for this to happen? (laughs) You know, like, why was I so desperate to have children? If this is what it's going to be like, have you ever been in one of those situations where like you ask God for something and then it happens and you're like, oh, whoops, uh, take it back. I don't want to, because <laughs> it, it might be a little bit more difficult than we imagine. Uh, and it says in verse 20, uh, oh, it says, so she went to inquire of the Lord. And that's really interesting because that actually, um, we see here, it says the Lord said to her, this, it, it mentions that God speaks directly to Rebecca before we see God speaking directly to Isaac. And I find that really interesting. Um, you can take that for whatever it is. But um, it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Um, and just a, a, a side note, they didn't have sonograms back then, so... I don't know if when you had twins, it was just like, oh, what? <laughs> There's another one. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's like a litter of puppies or what, but like you didn't, they didn't know. I don't think they knew that there was two people going on in there. They didn't have the technology. So she felt all this turmoil going on. And then so they give birth to twins and she's like, okay, maybe that's why. Cause there was 
two pairs of legs and two pairs of arms and, you know, all that stuff going on. And they were headbutting each other and arm wrestling and stuff, as we'll see. Uh, so that couldn't have been pleasant either. Uh, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Um, no, it's not describing me. Uh, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And it, we read this, and if you're familiar with the story, we just go, yeah, and then the, yeah, he was holding on to his heel. He was hairy like a cloak. But we have to try to, as I say, like we have to try to picture this um, because we don't want to become so detached from the story because it really does apply to us. And these are real people. We have to imagine not knowing you were going to have twins. The first one comes out and it's covered with hair. So she's like, okay, I prayed to the Lord for a baby and he gave me an animal instead. This is really strange. And then the one child, and my kids can be very stubborn, but can you imagine the twin coming out, grabbing onto the heel? It's like this like death grip. Most of the time, babies aren't like that when they're born. They're not like so stubborn, at least. Uh, so I'm sure they were like, oh my goodness, what have we gotten ourselves into? We have hairy beast and heel catcher here, and this is not going to be a fun parenthood. Um, in verse 26, uh, we read that already. Oh, I'm sorry, it says, and so they called his name Jacob, which literally means he takes by the heel or supplanter. Um, my wife, uh, her name is Jamie, and it's the etymology of the name Jamie is Jacob. Your name is Jamie too. So, And it means supplanter, which is like, great. You get those little Bible Bible name cards, like my name is Jeffrey. It means heavenly peace. My my brother is Luke. It means light, you know. My wife's like, Jamie, supplanter. Oh, that's great. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, but Jacob, yes, yeah, a, lot, a lot of those names come from the same line. Uh, and it says Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So 20 years after they had been married, they finally have children. They have Jacob and Esau. Um, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Josh can sympathize with that, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but Rebecca loved Jacob. And we see here, that's not really a good sentence to put into the Bible. We see a little parental favoritism cropping up, um, which we all know that um, it's not, not, nothing good can come from that, whether it's perceived by the children that one is favored uh, or not. Uh, we see that it, it makes specific mention that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He's like, he's a man. He kills animals and eats them and he brings them to me and I get to eat them too. It's a great relationship that we have. And then Rebecca loved Jacob because he was intense and he was quiet. Maybe he was helping her with her knitting or something. I don't know. But uh, the picture that it paints is one of complete contrast. So we, we want to make note of that. Um, but I want to take a moment to talk about barrenness because if you're familiar with the, the story of the Bible, this idea of barrenness crops up a lot. And I kind of never really thought about it. I was just like, oh, that's weird. Why would there be so much barrenness in the Bible? Like, no one can have kids unless God intervenes. Um, so if you think about it, there's Sarah was barren, Rebecca and Rachel, all three of the matriarchs, I guess you would say, of the faith, the, the wives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all barren, which is weird because God said specifically to Abraham, through your seed and your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So then why would he make them marry women that were barren? That's something to note. Uh, also, Samson's mother was barren, and it was an angel coming to them and saying, you're going to conceive. So a supernatural thing took place there. And then obviously we know Hannah, uh, if you're familiar with First Samuel, she was barren. 
she sought the Lord and said, I'm going to dedicate my son to you. If I can have this child, he's going to be dedicated to you. And we see, we see Samuel as the uh, result of that prayer. And then in the New Testament, we see Elizabeth. And we know who Elizabeth's son was. It was John the Baptist. Again, a miraculous birth. Even though God used Zacharias and Elizabeth to, uh, to create that child, it was still a miraculous sign that God was doing something unique and special. And John the Baptist was obviously the prophet that was going to be able to point to the Messiah. And what's interesting about this is that barrenness in this culture was such a huge weight on a family. It was, um, it was a misfortune for the woman and for the family because the religious practices were passed down through the family. Um, and obviously the, the, uh, the, the pride of your nation and your, your family lineage and the inheritance and all those things depended on you having an heir. And we talked, we saw Abraham with, before Isaac was born saying, is this person going to be my heir? And he's just a servant in my house or am I really going to have a son? Um, so I find it really interesting that God would pick women that were sterile to fulfill his promise. And I think there are a number of things in scripture that point to this. Um, and I think it's a foreshadowing of the fact that the birth that matters is the supernatural birth. The ones that are done by our, con- you know, just the, the simple anatomy and the biological uh, working together of a man and a woman, those things are fine, and that's the way God ordained it. But when he was doing something for his uh, promise, it was always to have people seek him. And we see every time someone's barren, they go to God and say, God, please open the womb. Please allow us to conceive a child for your glory. Because you said that through our seed, the nations would be blessed and your promise would come through that. So we're taking you at your word and we're praying according to your word and saying, do this. Because we believe by faith that you can do this. And then what does he do? He opens the womb. So they can never say, look what we did. Aren't we great? It was always God getting the glory. And that's really important. If you look, if you could go ahead to um, Romans chapter 9. I'll put it up on the screen. You guys don't have to turn there. I'm sorry. Um, it's the idea. We see this contrast throughout Scripture of the flesh and the spirit, or the flesh and the promise. The people that, you know, the children of, of the, the work of man's hands, or the children that came about through the promise of God. And it says, that is, those who are not the children of the flesh, those who are the children of the flesh, I'm sorry, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, and if you could move ahead, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Make note of that. It has to do with God's working in the lives of people that um, that gets us salvation even. And the fact that we are called from before we are conceived, God knows us, it says in Romans 8. Um, but I think that's cool. It says, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And then we see um, in John chapter 3, Jesus, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, if you're familiar with the story, he meets him by night and he says, you need to be born again or born from above, some translations say. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And I find that really 
interesting, and as I was preparing for this, I didn't realize how much this idea just runs throughout Scripture. Uh, and Chris and I have talked about it a lot. Like, once you under, you kind of look at Scripture through this idea of not what we do, but what God has done, it shows up everywhere. In every story you read, you're like, oh, wow, it's talking about works and faith. How about that? It's amazing. And we see it even here. The idea that these children were born by God's supernatural uh, intervention, essentially, or by the Spirit, you know, if we want to go that far. Um, so let's move on. I find, uh, oh, I, and as we see the, the true children at war, and, and we'll, we'll learn as we go on that Esau in the Bible is a type of the flesh, because uh, we'll see in a few verses um, that he, you know, he, he eats of his game, he's a hunter, he's, he's a type of the flesh. And Jacob, we know, is God's chosen uh, the descendant, and he's the governed by God when his name gets changed to Israel. So we see the, the types of the flesh and the spirit, essentially. And in Galatians 5, it says, uh, 5, 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then um, verse 17 says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And that's a great picture of what was going on in Rebecca. She has the one son that is a type of the flesh and a one, the one son that is a, the child of promise, the child of the spirit, and they're warring in her womb. And that, was, that would be something that would carry on. It says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And if you put those types together, you see the older one was Esau, the type of the flesh. The flesh... Uh, when, when, uh, when we are governed by God, like Jacob was, after his name was changed to Israel, the flesh serves the spirit. It's not the other way around. And I find that really comforting. When we have the spirit of God and we are called according to his purpose, it's the, the type of the flesh that's in us. It's, it's subservient. It's a, it's in submission to the spirit when we walk according to the spirit, like it says in Galatians 5. So I find that pretty cool. Um, so let's move on to verse 29. We'll get to know these boys a little bit. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And that's a little editorial comment. Edom comes from the word Adam, which we know from Adam means red, or or, you know, red clay, which is where we get the idea for Adam. Um, And Edom is... we. Esau ends up becoming the father of the Edomites, and we'll see the Edomites throughout the Old Testament. That's just an editorial note there. In verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So this is a really interesting story, and um, just Jewish tradition says that the boys, and I always picture them as adults here, but according to Jewish tradition, they say they were about 15 years old at this time. I don't know how they know this, um, but the Talmud dates uh, the this happening uh, at the time when, uh, sorry, that's not really relevant, never mind, <laughs> uh, it has to do with Isaac mourning for, I think, uh, Sarah. That doesn't make sense either. Anyway, uh, let's move on. I got a little lost. But um, in verse 
of Hebrews 12, 15, we see it, it mentions Esau. And uh, it, it, we, we, we've been going through Hebrews a lot as we go through the book of Genesis. But it says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And we see this idea of the birthright. And why is this important? Um, what's interesting about that, as, as I went through this, the idea of the firstborn and what are the rights of the firstborn and why is this theme constantly happening? And we see times when God has the younger get the firstborn blessing and not the older one. And uh, with Esau and Jacob, we see it this way. And what I find interesting is that Esau is a type of the flesh in that he would rather have temporary gratification for his hunger that he has than have claim to the rightful inheritance that is his. And the birthright that it's talking about here, it's that fir- the idea of the firstborn. And uh, with Esau coming in from the field, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's hungry. He has no thought or or regard for what is rightfully his at that point. All he cares about is satisfying his craving, his hunger, and that's it. And Jacob is smart, and he's a guy who probably was in the tents and figuring this all out, and he says, I'm going to get him. I want this birthright for myself, I'm gonna, and, and I'm going to have him sell it to me for uh, some soup, I guess. And uh, what's interesting about this is it says, it says to me, a lot because when it when it talks about it in Hebrews about you know fornication and being a profane person which essentially when something's profane it means it's commonplace it's something that people just walk all over that's the idea there You're, he treads he, he he treads his birthright and just walks all over it doesn't even regard it doesn't honor it in any way and what does that say to his his idea of the fact that Jacob I'm sorry Isaac is his father the father of promise or the son of promise from Abraham and uh you know Esau probably he knew Abraham and probably heard all the stories and he's just like my birthright I don't care and what I um what I would say to that is oftentimes we as Christians and myself included we forget who we are and we forget what is ours and we forget uh the fact that we are the uh the children of God and the children of promise. When we have uh, something that is hard in our life, when something comes in that brings pain and suffering and we're tired and we're beat up and we go, you know what? I'm just going to take that thing that's going to make me feel good right now and forget everything else and forget the fact that I am a son of the most high God. And the fact that he, God has called me from before I was in the womb to do works that he has given me the strength to do. We forget all of these things. Esau is a type of that. And it talks about it in Hebrews. It's you take your eyes off the author and finisher of your faith and you look at your circumstance and say, this is what I want because I want it now. And we see that over and over. People taking things into their own hands. And it says uh, in John, Jesus says, John six twenty seven. 27, um, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And what Jesus is talking about here, this is in the bread of life discourse, is that what it's called? And he's talking about the fact that the people came, they got fed with the 5,000, you know, the 5,000 people got fed with the loaves and the fish. And they said, we want to make you king. 
But it, and he said, it's not because you believe in me as king. It's because you were fed with the food. It was a temporary thing that they were looking for. They're like, hey, this, that was good bread. Can I have some more? And they were more concerned about that. Their, emphasis, their, their point of focus was on earthly things, carnal things, their, their fleshly satisfaction. And that is the tool that the enemy, or, or the thing about us that the enemy throws darts at is, you can take things into your own hands. If you're, in need, if you're a child of God, and he did it with Jesus, right? When he tempted him, he says, if you're the son of God, make those stones become bread. Why are you suffering? Why is this happening to you? Does God really care about you? He wouldn't if you were this hungry and this sad and this broken over your situation. That's not the God for you. You're not really a child of God. Just do what you can to satisfy that need right now, right? And that's what Esau does. And he goes, who cares about a birthright? Who cares about that? And Jacob does, obviously. That's why he tricked him into selling it to him. But if you recall last week, we talked about how Abraham did the exact opposite. He took everything that he had, and he, he valued Sarah so much, and giving her a proper burial was of such value to him that he was willing to pay an astronomical price for, her, for the cave of Machpelah so he could give her a proper burial. And we talked about David and the te- when he bought the temple, and he says, I'm not going to offer something to God that doesn't cost me anything. We looked at that briefly, and we talked about how following Jesus requires all of us, not just a little bit. Esau, immediately after this, is doing the exact opposite. He is taking something that is so trivial, lentil stew. It couldn't have been that good. Uh, it couldn't have looked that good. Red stew doesn't sound that appetizing to me. Maybe it's because I don't like lentils. But it's probably because I did that, that fast, and I'm sick of anything grainy or <laughs> organic-y or whatever. I'm just like, just give me something preser- uh, with preservatives, please. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this lentil stew... He takes the lentil stew and gets, he despises the thing that has eternal value. The fact that he is a son of Isaac, a son of Abraham, the child of promise. So you see the contrast there. Um, and again, so we talked about, you know, it was a challenge to us from the scripture to say, am I putting, is my life marked by the fact that I put eternal value in what God has called for me to do? And do, do the decisions that I make reflect that, that that is what I'm living for. That is what I'm pursuing, what God has for me, the best that God has for me. So we can also look here and say, are there things in my life where I'm selling God short and I'm, I'm settling for something that is not what he has for me? I'm, I, is my life lived in such a way that does not reflect who I really am? Because you know, Esau was the firstborn. He was the one who had all of the rights of the heir. And the Bible says we're, we're heirs with Christ, co-heirs. And are we making decisions in our life that satisfy a temporary need uh, all under the shadow or the darkness of we for, we're forgetting who we really are? And I, I, I'm convicted by that. I mean, I'm corrected by that um, just by reading that. And it says, uh, Billy Graham has a cool quote, and it says, um, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I will tell you where their heart is. And... Um, I see Esau as someone who is willing to give up something so valuable for something so trivial. And I'm, you know, I look at this and I say, what are the things in my life that I'm, you know, I'm selling God short. I'm not going for, I'm not going for exactly what God wants for me. I'm settling for something trivial um, because this is who we are. It says in Romans eight twenty nine, uh, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn 
among many brethren. So Jesus, we see over and over again, we'll look at another verse, he's the firstborn, and we are his brethren. So the fact that the firstborn takes such a preeminence is obvious, and we look in uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And then in verse 17 and 18. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So that is who we are. The fact that Jesus became the firstborn or he... It's not that Jesus was created, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say that this verse means that, see, God created Jesus, so he's not God. The firstborn, as we talked about, has to do with the position of the rightful heir of the inheritance, and that's what Jesus is. It has nothing to do with the fact that he, the emphasis is not on born. The emphasis is on first, in, in the idea of firstborn. And it's the same. He says he's the firstborn among many brethren. Who are his brethren? It's us. It says that we are co-heirs. It, the son... Uh, the, the slave does not abide in the house, but the son abides forever in the house, it says. And if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. We are joined together with Christ as heirs of the promise. Um, and what I find really cool is that it says, not only is he the firstborn over all creation, but he's the firstborn from the dead. He died and he rose again so that we can attain the resurrection from the dead as well. And why would Esau... I mean, I know Esau probably didn't have all this information in his back pocket when he was hungry for a red stew, but... To think about it, this is what we do all the time. And I, and I get, I look at it, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? You know, like, I'm thinking about all these great things that are going on, and then something happens in my life, and I'm just like, and then I say something, or I do something, and I wreck it, and I go, oh man, that wasn't worth it. So I'm sure when he was burping up his red stew, he was like, birthright? Oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, anyway, maybe there's some leftovers in the fridge. (laughs) You know, like, he, it's a convicting, uh, you know, it's a conviction of Esau here. That, and the Bible talks about it over and over again. It says, he gave it up. He gave up what was his for something that did not satisfy him. And um, what we want to do as Christians is do the opposite, what Abraham did, which was give up the temporary, the trivial, the, the things that pass away for the eternal. Jim Elliott, if you guys are familiar with... Um, him as a missionary and his story uh, was made into a film, End of the Spear. He uh, is attributed with a quote, and it says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And um, that is kind of like a, an, an adaptation of Philip Henry, who is somebody from the 1600s, and it's a little older, but I like the way it's worded too. It says, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. So that's our call as Christians when it says to lay down our life for Christ. Don't seek to save your life because you're going to lose it. Lose your life for my sake and you will find it. That is the mark of Christianity. It's I sh- You shouldn't be trying to work out your life yourself because you can't be trusted because you're going to sell it away for some red stew. Let me take it because I am the firstborn of many brethren. That is who you are. And put your faith and trust in me to carry out my promises for you. Because when we try to do it ourselves, we just end up with an empty pot and uh, some indigestion. (laughs) 
Um, so let's move on into chapter 26. And it says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all the lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So he's reiterating the promise that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac specifically, personally. And I think that's very important, that he's not only the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac, and we see that here. So Isaac settled in Gerar when the men, and this is this is deja vu all over again. I guess uh, like father, like son just doesn't quite do this story justice, but we'll see. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Have we heard this before? Twice, in fact. Isaac was like, that's a good idea, because when my dad did it, he got rich. Let me try. <laughs> um, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Ladies, she this is 20 years after she married Isaac and after giving a, having a hard nine-month pregnancy with these warring twins inside of her and then giving birth in a tent somewhere. And Isaac's still afraid? She must have been uh, a good-looking woman. And uh, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, saw, he looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Your translation may say showing endearment. Does anybody else have a different translation? King James, perhaps? It's really funny. King James says Isaac was sporting with his wife. Sporting. Was it? Caressing? Okay. Yeah, so literally the Hebrew says, he who laughs was laughing with his wife. Because it's the similar word, but it's a, it suggests an intimate relationship. But I just think the King James shines there. It says he was sporting. Were they playing wee bowling or something? They're like, this is great. And then Abimelech looks out the window and he's like, oh, shame. She's obviously not your sister. She's your wife. Now, I, don't, I just find that really interesting. And that the Bible has a lot of this little humor in there. I think it's funny. It says in verse 9, Abimelech called and said, behold, she is your wife. So whatever was happening, I don't think he was just laughing with Rebecca because he said, look, she didn't laugh at your jokes like a wife, like a sister would. She laughed at your jokes like a wife would. No, I think there was something going on a little bit more intimate. Um, and he said, why would you say that she was my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily, might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. And again, Chris had said this moment when he went over it, like when unbelievers rebuke believers, it's kind of like, ooh. <laughs> Like, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? And it's like, uh, yeah, let me go get my Bible. <laughs> you know, like, uh, it, Abimelech. I don't know if it's the same one, because a lot of people say Abimelech was just a title. But if it was the same Abimelech, he's probably like, fool me once, <laughs> fool me twice, get out of here. I don't want this anymore. Um, stop saying, anytime somebody is like, oh, this is my sister, he's like, what? No. I know she's your wife, even if they really were brother and sister. I don't know. He's probably really skeptical from here on out. And verse 10 Verse 11, I'm sorry. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac showed in that land, sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him 
And I don't necessarily think that we as Christians apply this and say, we want to get really rich so the world envies us. I think it's the fact that God blessed him and the world sees the fact that God blesses us when we put our faith in him. That should be the envy of the world. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, I'm rich and happy because of God. And now that should be why the world wants to get in on this because we know that's temporary. But what it should be is we're happy and we have a faith. And Chris talked about this before about when, whether you're in the midst of the dark place and you have joy and they go, man, how do you have joy through that time? That's envy. That's something they want. Or if it's, man, look how you're so generous when you have all this wealth, you know, you're just willing to share and God's blessing you. And man, I, I want to be, I want to have that heart. I want to have that, that, that feeling of love and, and community that you have. So it's not, we want the world to be jealous of us. We want the world to want the God that is our God. And I think that's kind of what's said in this verse here. Verse 15, it says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abraham said to Isaac, Go away from us. Oh, I'm sorry, Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. And what I find interesting here is that if you recall, we just talked about it. Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech for these wells. And he was like, Abimelech's like, hey, let's make a treaty. And Abraham said, I have something against you. You took these wells that were mine. And he's like, oh, okay, look here, you can have them back. As soon as Abraham dies, Abimelech's servants go and fill in those wells out of spite. And Isaac says, I will have none of this. <laughs> in verse 17, so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Notice this, and Isaac dug again the wells of the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So they, they're jealous again. They want that water because even though they didn't labor for it, they just filled it in. Now they're saying it's our water. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. And Essek means contention. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, which means enmity. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, which means broad places, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and pitched upon, I'm sorry, and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. They don't mention the fact that they stopped up the wells, um, which I find interesting. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So now they're starting to say, this guy's got a lot of stuff. I want in. Uh, and that might not be the best motive, but we see here that Isaac welcomes them. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba before. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. 
And when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, <laughs> that's a great name, uh, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So not only did Esau sell his birthright, I know we just read a lot, but thank you for bearing with me. Not only did he sell his birthright, but he went and married someone that he was not supposed to marry, therefore completely severing his inheritance in, uh, of being, any hopes of him being the child of promise at that point. You know, and obviously God had called Jacob to be the child of promise, but Esau just goes off the deep end at this point and says, Psh, forget it, I'm going to go and marry whoever I want. I don't care what my parents think. And it said it was bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. So just to wrap up here, um, we see a couple things. And what we see is we see barrenness. We see Rebekah and Isaac heartbroken that they can't have a child and they go and seek the Lord to fill that need, that longing that's in their life. And uh, then we see Esau has a longing and a hunger in his life. It's a temporary one. It's not something that can't be satisfied by, you know, regular means, but he's willing to give up everything for it just for something temporary, something carnal. And then we have Isaac, who is a type of Christ. As we look, we've already talked about it, how he's bound and sacrificed. But now we see this thing of Isaac. He's constantly digging wells, constantly finding water, constantly bringing his family to a place where they can drink. And I find it really interesting how these all connect. In uh, Zechariah 12.10, it says, and this is a prophecy that... Uh, that you will, uh, you may have recognized as we go on. It says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is a prophecy of Jesus, obviously, when we see that they looked on him who had, who, who had been pierced, who was an only son and a firstborn. So we see that the theme there of firstborn again. And then in Zechariah 13, 1, it says, in that day, that day when they look on him and see that they've pierced him, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So why would they need a fountain for sin and uncleanness unless it was a different kind of fountain that they're talking about? They're not just talking about water. They're talking about something supernatural. And uh, when we look at Esau, we see this idea where we're trying to, fuf- we're trying to fulfill an, a deep longing that God has put in, inside of us for him to fill. And what we do is we go out into the world and see what the world has to offer to fill that need, that hunger, that God-shaped hole that we all have. And in uh, Philippians three eighteen, it says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And you can see Esau in that. His God was his belly. That desire that he had, that desire was his God. Instead of it being God, that was his desire. It was a desire that had become an idol, had become a God to him so that he would do anything for that desire rather than do anything to have the God who satisfies that desire. And what's interesting is that word belly. Uh, If you could go to the next slide, we'll do a little brief Greek lesson as we finish up. It's (laughs) koilia, which is from koilos, which means hollow. Uh, And in Latin, it's koelum, which is heaven. There's an idea of heaven being uh, conveyed there, which is kind of weird because that word is translated in the New Testament as belly, which we see here. We see it as um, 
like it's the idea of the innermost part of a person. And it's also very oftenly translated as womb, which when you put it in context with what we were talking about with the barrenness, it starts to really come together. And we see in John, we go back to John 3, 4 and to 6. And Jesus is talking about Nicodemus. We talked about this at the beginning. Nicodemus said, can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Same word as that belly, that innermost being that has a desire and, and needs to be filled. Jesus said, unless you are born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse six, it said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We start to see these ideas start to connect here. There is a deep longing inside of us, whether it's, you know, the Bible calls it our belly or out of our innermost being or, you know, for, for the woman, the womb, the idea of that, that which life springs forth from. Okay. And we see in John seven, and we'll wrap up here, seven thirty-seven thirty-eight. Jesus said on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, that's the same word, coelia, or however you say it. It's the same word, out of his heart. It's the same one as belly, same one as womb. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rather than seek satisfaction in the world with temporary things that we get them and we go, oh, that didn't satisfy me the way I thought it would, just like Esau, rather than attaining that which the world presents as the end-all, be-all celebrity success story. And we see, you know, with Robin Williams and stuff, it doesn't mean anything. Um, And uh, rather than do that, we should seek the Lord who promises to satisfy that hunger and that thirst. It says um, in uh, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, Ho, which I find it awesome. (laughs) Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy you? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What is he talking about there? Why is he saying we spend our wages and our money on that which is not bread, on that which does not satisfy? We saw in John when he says, um, Jesus said, I'm the bread of God. I'm the bread of life. If you eat me, you will never hunger. If you believe in me, you will never thirst. If you come to me, that longing, that desire to have life's bring forth from you like Rebecca had, like Esau had that hunger, that desire to be satisfied. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And we see Isaac digging wells, bringing forth water as a type of Jesus saying, come to me and drink and be satisfied. And in Revelation, the last verse, Revelation 21, 6, it says, and he said to me, it is done. The well has been dug and it will never be filled up. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So when we look at these stories, and they can kind of seem disconnected in a sense, but they are connected in a way that astounds me even. Rebecca had that womb that was dead, and God supernaturally opened it so that uh, Jacob and Esau could be born. Then we have the flesh and the spirit going at it which is just like our Christian walk, if we're not governed by God like Jacob was. Then we see Esau, the type of the flesh, trying to satisfy that God-shaped hole, that longing, with something that will never satisfy him ultimately. 
And then we see Isaac digging the wells and providing that life-giving water to his family and to his servants. And I just see that as a great picture of Jesus coming forth from as the firstborn son, supernaturally born, born from above, born again. Uh, and then when we come to him, we are the brethren, we are the, the co-heirs with that firstborn inheritance, and we receive that which satisfies us eternally. And I, I think that's really cool. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for the patience of these folks. I pray that you would bless our time of fellowship as we continue on. In Jesus' name, amen.